sat down with his disciples to eat and then pray in the garden before his arrest his eventual and his eventual crucifixion on Friday. The Gospel of John gives us an extensive recounting of the things Jesus shared with his disciples that night. It's interesting that uh, you have very little of the, of the material that you find in John and the other Gospels, and yet uh, John is clear that uh, before Jesus went to the cross that he was uh, diligently, uh, lovingly preparing his disciples with final words for them to know. One of the things that Jesus told them was this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. The Latin translation of the phrase new commandment is mandatum novum, and thus we get what we call tonight Monday Thursday. And it's on this new commandment that I want us to dwell tonight. Specifically, I want us to look at two passages from the Gospel of John. And so if you'll turn to John chapter 13, that will be where our first reading is. I feel very hot. Am I loud back there? I feel like I'm echoing all over the place. Okay. Okay, as long as, long as it's not, as long as you're fine, I'm fine. John chapter 13. And if you're recording, that's one we want to sniff out right there. <laughs> John chapter 13, and then if you want you to put your finger, uh, put a finger in John chapter 18, we're going to read two passages tonight. We'll go from uh, a passage in John 13, and we'll flip right over into John 18. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you knew these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's the author of this gospel, John, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then in chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? May God bless the reading of his word. One of the things that is not shown in the Passion of the Christ, in fact, it's not shown in any movie uh, surrounding the crucifixion that I have ever seen, is this scene from John chapter 18. We often have this picture of the, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders, the authorities, the temple guards coming to capture Jesus, and yet... Um, John is very clear that with them comes uh, a couple hundred Roman soldiers as well. And as Judas identifies Jesus uh, and you know, points him out and the people come down into Jesus, Jesus uh, preemptively says, who are you looking for? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answers him, I am he. And in the original text, what he says is the same phrase as we find in John chapter 8 when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. When I read when I read this in high school, uh, much more aware of what I was reading, I was amazed that the people staggered back, and I had to ask myself why? Why did they stagger back? Uh, what's going on? And I was tempted to think that it was because Jesus had just said, "I am, uh, I am He." But the thing is, these Romans would have had no idea 
what the significance of ego amy, which is what Jesus would have said, I am he or I am. They would have had no idea what that was. And frankly, uh, one Jew claiming divinity for himself I don't think would have really meant anything. I think that what causes the Romans to flinch is simply uh, this, is that, or stagger back, is that Jesus doesn't flinch. When they say we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't take a step back and say, uh, I'm not seeing the guy, folks, but I think he may be over in the next town. He doesn't kind of look around and say, who? Uh, I've never heard of this guy, Jesus. He simply boldly asserts, I am the one you're looking for. I am he. And it's, it, it caused them to pause. They're thinking that they're prepped for battle. They're waiting for a fight. And Jesus puts up no fight. He doesn't resist. He doesn't try and run away. And so it causes them to fall back with uncertainty. And yet, in retrospect, one of the things that John loves to do is to show that people sometimes speak and sometimes react and understand better than they know. And so when you have uh, the high priest for the year saying, it's better that Jesus dies, better that one man die, that then, then the, whole, the whole nation be destroyed, he doesn't realize that that's exactly why Jesus is going to die, so that salvation will come to his people. And so I think here John wants us to understand that though the Romans themselves did not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear, we who stand now on this side of the cross and resurrection know that when Jesus said, I am he, I am Jesus of Nazareth, it was not simply a peasant from Nazareth who stood in that garden that night. It was the eternal I am who had taken on flesh that day who stood before these Romans and rather than return them to the dust from which he created them, which he had every right to do, he allowed himself to be taken prisoner. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be strung up on a cross like the vilest of criminals. And it's this commandment to love his disciples, that his disciples are to love one another, that those that were there and those that would continue to become his disciples for the next 2,000 years, it's this act that would become the basis for that command. Love one another as I have loved you. And so as we look at these two texts and really everything in between, we have to ask ourselves, how do we fulfill this command to love one another? What does that look like for us? And I want us to observe four things about this love. First, the kind of love with which we are to love one another, the kind of love with which Jesus loved us is, first of all, a love that is humble. A love that is humble. Here the Savior is washing the feet of the disciples. Now, it's kind of lost on us a little bit because we live in an industrialized culture that has nice sidewalks and nice paved roads. Some of you live out in the country and we know something more of this, but those of you that have been with us to Africa know this all too well. When you are walking on nothing but dirt and sand and garbage all day in sandals, uh, you come back to your room and your feet are pretty disgusting. And it's not something that I would ever expect someone to do or ask someone to do, wash my feet after that kind of a day. And yet that's exactly what Jesus himself does. And as he starts to wash Peter's feet, Peter almost instinctively knows there's something just not right about this. And he says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. But he's already missed the opportunity for what he should have done, which was take the initiative and wash Jesus' feet. His response is not driven by humility, but one of pride. For if, it was, if he was truly humble, he would have only not, not only washed Jesus' feet, but all of the feet of the disciples there. 
because he has failed in this, Jesus himself, without pride, continues to serve his disciples displaying humility. As we seek to obey this command that Jesus gave to love one another, even as Jesus loved us, we need to understand that it will be marked with humility. There will be a love that is driven and characterized by humbleness. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean washing the bathrooms or taking out the garbage without grumbling. You know, it's one thing to realize that everybody else is left and you're here by yourself and the trash is falling out of the garbage can and someone has to take it away and you're angry about it and, and uh, you know, spouting off under your breath and thinking, why am I... Got... Well, that's not humble. You're just doing it because it has to be done. But to truly be the first one there, to be the one who makes the intentionality of pulling the trash out when there's still lots of people here, that could be it. It could be cleaning the bathrooms. Uh, though it could be something much more profound. It could be making the decision in... Humility, not to have the last word in a conversation, not to want to win the argument, even when you know you're right and the other person's wrong. Whatever it looks like practically as God's people, as Christ's disciples, we are called to love one another as Christ loved us, and that means to love in such a way that is marked by humility. But it also means, secondly, to love in a way that is not self-interested. This kind of love that Christ exhibited that we are to love one another with is not self-interested. Here I simply want to, to ask this. How could Jesus wash Judas' feet? He could have waited until Judas left. He knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to leave to betray him, and he could have waited. He could have waited and washed the other 11's feet after Judas left, but he didn't know that. Here is Judas, a man who has been playing a game for the last three years. He has been filling up his own coin purse at the expense of the poor. He has been acting pious while his heart has grown in wickedness. He's about to betray Jesus to those who would kill him. And Jesus knows all of this. He knows all of this. And yet, there he is, stooping down with the basin and the towel and showing love to Judas. Here's the thing. It's very easy to love people who will love you back. It's very easy to love people who will love you back. It is very easy to do good things for people who are in a position of authority or power or respect so that they can reciprocate one day and do something good with you. It's one thing to volunteer to pick up the famous uh, preacher at the airport and bring him to the seminary so he can speak so that you can introduce yourself to him. So that one day perhaps you'll be able to call in that token and you can get a nice cushy job somewhere. It's another thing. It's another thing to go out and perhaps give the last money you have in your wallet to someone who's on the street in need of food, who cannot do anything good for you. That is the mark of true, non-self-interested, selfless love, the kind of love that Jesus himself demonstrates here. Even God himself, the Bible says, is not served with human hands. Even in trusting Christ as Savior and living for him, trying to serve him, we must understand he doesn't need us. Jesus did not die for us because he needed an audience. He did not die for us because he needed us to serve him, to give him worship and glory. He delights when he is seen for the glorious God that he is. But he does not need us for that. Instead, Jesus loved us without any self-interest. And when we seek to love one another, we must follow his example. We need to make sure we aren't just loving people because we want them to love us in return. We aren't just doing good things for people so that they can in turn do something good for us. Third, the kind of love with which we are going to show one another 
is rooted in the saving effects of the cross. In a moment of passion, Peter intends to go down fighting. He believes this is the moment. This is when Jesus as the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom. This is going to be the first skirmish in a battle by which the Romans are going to be driven out of the promised land and the kingdom of God will come on the earth. And yet Jesus tells him, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup that Jesus speaks of here is the the metaphorical cup of God's wrath, the cup that we read about him earlier wrestling to take up because he knew what it would mean. And so he wrestled in prayer. Is there any way that I would not have to pick up this cup and drink it down like water to the very dregs of the bottom of the cup? And he comes to the end and says, God, I know this is the way it has to be, and therefore, because it is your will, I will do it. To take up the cup is to embrace the outpouring of God's judgment on sin that would happen on the cross. John remarks in chapter 13, Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. I love that verse. It says even in the last moments that he is with them, the final hours, Jesus is loving them by washing their feet, by telling them, It's going to be okay. I know you can't understand that, but one day you will remember what I'm saying to you. This is why I have called you out. This is what you're going to do. This is why I am dying and why I will rise back up again. This is why he told the Romans, I'm the one you seek. Let these men go. And even here, all of this love was culminating in the cross whereby Jesus would willingly be their substitute before God. It's the cross that stands at the very center of Jesus' love for his people. Thus in telling his people, his disciples, to love one another even as he loved them, we must first and always think of the cross as we love one another. First of all, that means that when we think of one another, we will think of one another as being worthy of being loved. Sometimes it is easy to forget who is the people of God. We look around and we think in terms that the world thinks. This person is close to my age. They share the same life experience. But Christ cuts through all that and he says, that's not what any of this is about. The love with which you are to love one another is the kind of love with which I loved you, which is supremely seen in the cross. That means when we look at those in this body that say, I am a Christian, we are looking at people for whom Christ died. We are looking at people for whom Christ shed his blood to ransom them out of sin to bring them together as a people for himself that will one day make up the perfect and beautiful and glorious bride of Christ for which Christ alone is worthy. Don't just look at people as people. Look at them the way Christ looked at them. People for whom he died. But more than that, it means also having a cross-centered attitude towards them. Jesus is the one who sacrificed everything out of love for his friends. During his earthly life, Jesus sacrificed his glory, his reputation, his physical needs, his safety, even his very life, all out of love for his people. Therefore, when we seek to honor Christ and love one another, that love should be marked by a spirit of sacrifice as seen in the cross. Finally, this love 
with which we are to love one another is part of our witness to the world. It's part of our witness to the world. Why is loving one another so important? Have you ever thought about that when you read the Bible? I mean, there's a lot of things that, that seem to be pretty important in the Bible, and yet particularly when you reach the culmination of things in Christ in the New Testament, one of the things you see over and over again, both on Jesus' lips and the writings of Paul, is love one another, love one another, love one another. Love one. Why is love so important? Why is this specific Christ-like love so important? Well, stop and just think about it for a minute. In the world... Every other group of friends, every other club, every other team, every other business is based not on love, but on common interest. Again, you have a common background. You were both in the military. You, you both had four kids. You both homeschooled. You both grew up in the same town. You both had fathers who were in the Kiwanis Club. And so you, you continued to join in there. It's all based on some kind of common purpose, some kind of common interest, some kind of common desire. Even if it's just, we want to make money, as much money as we can, so we go in business together. You may hate each other's guts, but you're there because you want to make money, and you know you're both good at it. Again, Jesus says, that's not what my people are about. That's not what my people are about. You have the rich business people, like the woman who sold purple cloth, and you have her coming to worship at my feet through the word and the gathered assembly next to the slave. You have Jew and Greek. You have uh, people from all over the world. They are coming together not because they share common interests, not because it's easy to like one another, not because you're bosom buddies the first time you meet, but because Christ died for you. And so I look out and I see men with whom, frankly, I have very little in common with, even in this body. And yet I love them because Christ died for them. And he has put our lives together in this local body of believers. We have been knit together, not because we like the same sports team, and we both ride Harley-Davidson's, or we're both hunters, because Jesus shed his blood for us. And that is why when people look at the world, when people in the world look at the church, and we love one another as we're supposed to. Jesus says, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Because they look at the church and they say, they're not like any other group I've ever seen. They are so diverse. They are so different. I don't understand why they're all together. But they love one another. I want that. I don't know what it is. I don't know why they have it or how they got it. But that is what I want. As the Jews said of the apostles, we can tell they have been with Jesus. And so it should be said of us. Again, one scholar says, What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance. Commenting on Jesus' command to love one another, D.A. Carson says this, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. I think I probably fall in the latter category there. Here's Jesus about to go to the cross, and the last thing he says is, Look, I've taught you a lot of things, but tomorrow I'm going to be strung up, and here's what I want you to remember. When you see me like that, Years from now, when you think about what you saw, when you think about what happened, 
I want you to remember that, and I want you to love one another that way. That level of humility and lack of self-interest, that level of sacrifice, that's what I want to be wrapped up in how you love one another. Tonight, as we think about Jesus last night with his disciples, as we think about the ratification of the new covenant through the new covenant meal we call the Lord's Supper and the impending shedding of Christ's blood, as we think about the new commandment to love one another, not just to love one another as we want to be loved, but now to love one another as Jesus himself loved us, we need to think about how we live this out both individually and together as a body of believers. And what I want us to do is to spend some time together in prayer thinking about that, asking God, how, how am I doing with this? Why is it that there are some people I will immediately talk to at the end of every service, before every service, that I will sit next to and enjoy sitting next to at every meal we have, and yet I know certain people I avoid in the hallways, at meals, certain people that I would never think about doing anything with in this church. I want us to think about perhaps people in other churches that claim the name of Christ that we think I would never have anything to do with them. And we have to ask ourselves, why am I not loving God's people the way Christ has commanded me to? And as in just a minute, Lisa is going to come and play quietly during this time of prayer after you have prayed to God, after you have went with him and to him, you've asked him to work in your life and to transform your thinking as we continue to exercise faith in the one who saved us, then I want to invite you perhaps as a family, perhaps as an individual or a couple, I invite you just whenever you're ready to come down to the front to partake of the Lord's table here, taking the cup and the bread and quietly going back to your seat and waiting until we have all come to partake and then we will sing another hymn and we will go out remembering what Christ was about to willingly do for us on Good Friday. So this time I'll ask Lisa to come and begin playing. I'll ask Steve to come and help me prepare the table. And as you pray and as you uh, feel ready, then you come and receive the Lord's Supper tonight.